How's it, everyone, and welcome to Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, a special edition and the second last one of the year, or possibly third last one of the year. We're still kind of making our minds up on that one. Um, but I am half of your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined today by the other half of your hosts, Mr. Gabriel Krauser. Gabriel, how are things? How's everything? Fantastic. We uh, are just uh, going through the last drips of a minor hailstorm. So right. if you and hear so- sort of shrieking children or or <laughs> weeping farmers, it's because the seedlings are being destroyed. Indeed. Uh, and, and, and also if Gabriel cuts out or, or goes strange or there's a loud crashing sound, it's because he's recording cowering in his garage to try and get away from all the sound. Yeah, there's hard life in the countryside, although it's quite beautiful. Indeed. Uh, and today we have a little bit of a special episode because we are, of course, joined by another Nick, a replacement Nick, uh, in case I should be struck down during the recording, and that's Nick Babaya, who is uh, a colleague of ours at uh, the, the Center for Risk Analysis, which is the, the IRR's sort of sister organization. Uh, Nick, yes. how's it going? Oh, good day, Nick. Good day, Gabriel. Thanks for having me on the show today. I know we at the CRA tend to have our noses into the data and looking at graphs and continually poring over, shall we say, the less philosophical of things at the Institute. Uh, but I, I had a few thoughts which I thought I, I might want to discuss, and so you guys have graciously allowed me to come on to the show, and I think we'll we'll, we'll have an interesting discussion. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the CRA is kind of like our well-dressed, responsible, moderate cousin. And while we're the sort of loose rebel, uh, you know, with a spiked collar and a black T-shirt and leather jacket smoking behind the bike sheds. Yeah, and a big beard. Um, We're like the bike (laughs) gang of of the liberal world (laughs) in South Africa. (laughs) The the two crickets and a thorn tree, of course, the smoothest glass of Amarula that you will drink. For your ears, indeed. (laughs) So it's Amarula and cigarettes, uh, but today joined by uh, Data. And although I, I want to say I like uh, uh, Babaya's intro because I think that the evidentiary side of the Institute's work is it's meat and potatoes. Eh? It's really what keeps us going. Uh, I think we really are good at it. I think it's safe to say that uh, in our field, we're the best in the country. Of course, uh, we want to we want to grow and be one of the best in the world. Um, but Indeed. there is another side to things, which is which is uh, important to look at, and it's something that uh, that I think we all had our attention drawn to by its absence, the absence of the of the cooler room conversations, as it were, right. uh, where we where we gather up arbitrarily and and really talk to our values. Meta at a le- meta level, uh, that's something that is harder to do when you don't share a physical space. And uh, so we had a conference last week uh, where we where we all met virtually for two days, two whole days of just discussing stuff. And and part of what we want to talk to about today is what Babaya presented um, there. And uh, and yeah, just sort of make the circle bigger, bring in our listeners to to think about a very interesting paradox. Uh, right. that confronts anyone who's interested in freedom indeed uh, and this is this is what i was going to say is we have a we had a we, the you know there was a bit of a discussion and argument that went on between gabriel and uh, nick uh, i'm not i wasn't party to it so i'm not sure if all of its 
contours, but I'm sure they will unpack it for us shortly. Uh, and, you know, you should never leave a good argument to waste because it's too good a thing. And uh, that is about the so-called paradox of tolerance. Um, Nick, start us off. What did you say to us the other day in your presentation and why did this come up? Yeah, so, I mean, this paradox of tolerance wasn't necessarily from my presentation there, just to say, but, but what, what I'll, I'll the following. A few things have happened in the past three to four days at the Institute, which have really got me thinking a little bit how how classical liberals or libertarians should think about running a society in which the government does not police people's moral behavior. And generally speaking, if you hold the view that people should have individual liberty and they should be able to do what they want, so long as that they do not harm others, uh, that means that that often requires you to allow legally people to do things which you do not approve of. And you can yourself choose do those things but the whole thing is that you don't exert government force on them so this is this is like a very basic principle and and libertarians have typically had responses to to issues of well how do we solve bad societal issues and we'll come to that just now but but for the moment let, let's raise an interesting paradox i think in in political science this is something first brought up by Karl popper and, and, he, and he calls it the the tolerance paradox so let's say we want to live in a tolerant society let's let's talk now not of government per se, but we as a society want to be tolerant of things that other people do and 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 people and cultures that are different from us. Um, the The problem with this then comes in, what do you do about ideas and people advocating for intolerance? Surely you cannot live in a tolerant society where you are tolerant of precisely the opposite of the meaning of the, of the society. It's a little bit difficult to articulate nicely. Um, but okay, then you might say, okay, well, we can be tolerant of all ideas except those that are intolerant. Now, that's a very dangerous precedent to set because once you say that you can be intolerant of something, then you go down the route of saying, well, that means that we can be intolerant of X and Y. And if you begin to grant those kinds of powers to government, the potential for them to be abused comes along. Like you might say, you know, I don't know. I, the things that are that that power can be abused is, I suppose, the, the the point I would say here. So, what what do we do about this? Typically speaking, in law, we would say that we should have freedom of speech, and that should be limited to something like incitement of violence. Some people believe it should go further than that. They think you should have hate speech laws, um, and so it, you know, it brings up this whole conversation. But what makes it very difficult is that there's no clear cut. Uh, boundary of saying this is what we should tolerate, this is what isn't, because a lot of things can be considered harmful or intolerant. Um, yeah, I mean, let's let's start off with that, and then I'll, I'll go a little bit into perhaps what I was talking about at the conference. So, I mean, Gabriel, do you have any thoughts on this this particular thought experiment? Well, not a thought experiment yet. Um, just a, just a framework. The paradox of tolerance is that to sustain a tolerant society, you must not tolerate intolerance, something like that. And I think that our listeners will be familiar with a kind of another background principle that I like to bring forward, which is the difference between the social desires, the basic social desires, and the ways that we compete for those desires satisfaction. So one desire is for power. And uh, here, you know, I understand power to be getting other people to do what you want them to do. So 
So parents often have power over their children. Go sit in your room. The kid will go sit in his room even if he doesn't want to. Um, you can have power over your friends. You can say, please do me a favor. You know, it can be quite sweetly expressed. Um, and then as a subset of power, there's hard power, which is understood as the ability to, to do what you want them to do by the threat of violence. So when you actually do do the violence, you know, you put a gun to someone's head and you say, give me the keys to your car. You present them with uh, a choice. Ultimately, they can choose to try and resist and probably die, or they can choose to give you the keys to their car. Uh, if you if you if you resist and then you get shot in the head and in the course of the resistance the time is spent so the guy can't get away um, then the actual discharge of violence he hasn't gotten what he wanted he didn't get you to do what he wanted he might sort of physically take the keys from you after shooting you um, that's that's sort of a bit different to hard power in, in this sense but I suppose you could say it's 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 very much adjacent so there's so there's power getting people to do what you want and then there's hard power getting them to do what you want by the threat of violence. And uh, this is where state action comes in, because whenever the state makes a law, it's ultimately backed up by violence. It's backed up by police who will come to your door. Uh, you know, first it might be a fine and you have to pay the fine. If you don't pay the fine, then uh, someone might try to seize your assets electronically. But if you manage to sort of hide them away, then they're going to have to come and collect physically. And if you resist that, then they're going to have to arrest you and they, then it becomes violent and you get put in jail. Or if you resist the arrest, you get shot. So all state action is ultimately grounded on hard power. Uh, so that's one side. Then the other side is is property. You know, how do we how do we sort of get by in the world? Well, mostly by voluntary exchange of property. And my understanding of the property rights system is that it's grounded in violence. You know, what's mine is mine and what's yours and yours is ultimately the case just in so far as it's true that if you try through coercive force violence to take my stuff then uh, the, the violence powers of the state will will uh, take it back from you and punish you for doing that and then the third side is esteem and you know this is just likes and dislikes now, the reason, uh, one reason that it's useful to 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 keep those three axes, you know, it's a three-dimensional social life we live, is is that you can then sort of uh, narrow the, the the question around whether there really is a paradox of tolerance uh, by looking at it through those three different axes. Uh, so, in a tolerant society, one question is, what should the government tolerate? What kind of speech should the government tolerate? What kind of action should the government tolerate? Uh, when should it bring its capacity to do violence, uh, to stop people from uh, doing X or Y? And when should it allow it to continue? Uh, the second question is, when should people use their buying power to reward or punish what is said? And that can be in terms of the content that you buy, uh, and it can be in terms of the people that you employ or refuse to employ. And then the third side is the esteem side. And uh, I, and there's something to be said about the esteem side, which is that sometimes intolerance, on the esteem side, intolerance just means dissing someone, right? Well, not exactly. Something I try to remind people of is that esteem is different to attention. We are currently living in one of the great esteem market dislocations or disruptions of the last millennium. 
really, in a lot of ways, uh, this sort of social media um, innovation, technological innovation is like radio and like TV. Uh, but in terms of the, the, the increase in actual in, information, in attention, human-created uh, intellectual property, which can be attended to or not by others, and the decrease in the price of that, it's much more, the, the only thing that's really like it is the printing press uh, 500 odd years ago. So one of the things that you notice uh, looking through history, as well as uh, looking at sort of families where you've got small children, is, is, is when, when an esteem market is very young, uh, it's very easy to confuse attention with esteem. So it's like if you're getting attention, it's, it's as if you're getting esteem. Uh, but of course, attention and esteem aren't right. exactly I, the same thing. I have an and, excellent example of of such a character. Has have yeah. either of you ever heard of Jake Paul? No. Is that Logan Paul's brother? That is Logan Paul's brother. Yes. Okay, I don't know. <laughs> he's a, I don't know. I literally don't know anything else about him. Tell me your example. Yeah, he's he's a he's a character from the internet who's very famous for. I don't know. Being fam he's famous uh, beyond. So he's got a following that's mostly sort of smaller kids. He does a wide range of content. Um, I think a lot of it started out with prank videos and stuff. Anyway, he got really big, but he's also one of those people that people love to hate. Like in in people who pay attention to to someone like him, he's a, he's a perfect example of someone who has a lot of attention but is just disesteemed by large por portions of the society, mm -hmm. including me. He. He's just sort of odious and shallow and nasty, and he pursues this very, very aggressively. Like, uh, you know, he constantly takes controversial positions just for the sort of reaction they promote. And recently, he's gotten into boxing, and now his whole shtick is he gets people to challenge him to boxing fights and then beats them, which only makes people more angry because they desperately they tune in to watch him getting beaten up, and then he wins, and that makes people go mad anyway <laughs> this, Sorry, is amazing. this is a very good example so right yeah so right now in a lot of people's minds yeah and paris hilton was like a figure like that when i was a teenager right. famous for That's being famous example, and, yeah. and no one really liked her and uh but and yet she was like such a topic of conversation so I, I so think, the reason i, I say Kim this, kardashian started that way but has since moved on but morphed exactly so the, the reason i flag this is that there's two ways to diss someone one way is to pay attention to them and then diss them publicly, right? As, as you've just done, as I've just done in a way. Uh, the other is to not pay attention to them, is to, is to fully, is to deny them attention, which is the precondition of esteem, to say, I just don't want to know about that person. I don't want to, I don't want them on my mind at all. So on the esteem side, I just want to separate those two different kinds of, 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 of intolerance, of dissing. Um, and, and, and I think that when it comes to the paradox of tolerance, I see no. In fact, I think we abuse the word intolerance, or, or, or misunderstand there to be a paradox if we think that uh, a tolerant society requires no dissing. I think that's a that's an old mistake to make. I think people have been making that mistake for about as long as they've been talking about conversations, as long as people have been having meta conversations. There's always been someone in the room who says, guys, let's just be nice to each other. Let's not say nasty stuff about each other. Uh, we need to spread the good vibes. Uh, that's how we're going to go forward. That's that's crazy. Um, that's like trying to marry someone and say, you know, I'm, we're never going to have a fight. We're never going to have an argument. Uh, if you manage to do that, it'll only be because you don't have a, a, a healthy relationship. You'll probably end up just not speaking to each other. Um, it, real human beings 
require support and they and we also require um dissing we require criticism so i think that uh that's just that's just a, a point to flag is that uh there's uh, there's only a very superficial uh, paradox created by a misuse of the language where saying no i don't you know I, you've got a very intolerant attitude towards this person because you because you're saying for example you know julius malema uh, i've said some critical things about well, julius can, malema can I, can I it would be a mistake to say i've got an intolerant attitude i think it's different let me just finish this word. i think it's different if you refuse to talk about someone and there has often been this idea about the eff that it would be better to just never discuss them um Anyway, so I'll leave it at that. And Nick, tell me, yeah, Babaya, go ahead. Okay, so, so now that I was going to bring up the EFF as well. So, so okay, so here's the thing, though, right? The EFF may do, okay, when they do things, it's a little bit different because then you're talking about something physical. But they may advocate for a lot of things which we don't like, which we think are, we think maybe we think are morally wrong, but are still legal to advocate for because we have freedom of speech, we have freedom of political association and so on. Now, let's think about a topic like expropriation without compensation. The three of us here are all fervently in favor of property rights. We are all against expropriation without compensation. Um, however, I'm not sure. Okay, are you, are you changing your mind on this one now, Gabriel? Or just, just for argument's sake, let, let's go with this. Um, yeah, no, I'm with you so far. I just really okay. just lit a cigarette. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, I don't smoke. I always forget about these little things we have people have to do in life um, little noises in the background yeah go ahead yeah. okay so we all we all we're all for uh property rights against ewc right now our property rights is just one kind of right which we have we also have things like freedom of speech we also like have things like bodily autonomy like someone cannot punch me in the face okay like they are then aggressing against me and i have the right to then go take them to court and you might have a criminal trial for assault or whatever now, likewise, if someone were to stand in a crowded street with me on the opposite side of the street and they said, hey, everyone, go punch Nick in the face, that would also be illegal because we are now inciting someone to violence. So now let me ask, why is it that it's legal to advocate for expropriation of property without compensation? Uh, because if you think about it, this is not that different to the example I mentioned with people saying, hey, everyone go punch Nick. In this case, you are saying, hey, government, go and take away Nick's property. So you so are that's saying the now, difference. The, the difference is, so if I go to a police station and I say, I really don't like Nick Babaya. I don't like how he looks. Look at his pasty white skin. It's terrible. It's an offense to all things good and holy in the world. I want you to arrest him. I see no crime there. Uh, the way things ought to go is that the government, the police, should uh, sh sort of say, okay, we'll take a statement. Okay, we see no crime. Okay, uh, we're not going to pursue that. Um, and likewise, if someone's advocating for the government to uh, steal everyone's stuff, which is what expropriation without compensation basically allows, uh, then it's up to the government to say no. And the government, in this sense, is 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 the people, uh, and we should, uh, as the people of South Africa, sort of vote out anyone who supports EWC, uh, or any but politician who second. does. So we should vote out the ANC, and we should vote out the EFF. And furthermore, I think because property rights 
you know, I think there's a strong argument to be made. I've alluded to this earlier that property rights are a fundamental right, uh, much like the right to criticize government. Um, it's 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 just the case that you can't have a democracy without those rights, and, and that makes it one of those very rare cases where uh, even if the people fail to vote out uh, those politicians who call for uh, EWC, there is an argument, very strong argument, to be made for the courts uh, to then step in and say, look, you might have a mandate of the majority, but. Uh, not everything that a majority calls for is consistent with democracy, um, including if the majority said, for example, we would like a king for life or something, uh, Caesar for life. Uh, and so we're going to step in and say that uh, this is unacceptable. So I see a very sharp difference uh, between uh, the, the private citizen's ability to do violence and the state's capacity to do that. And, that, and, that's, and that's the salient difference to me. Uh, and, and that's the reason that I, I think it should be allowed for anyone to make any argument about what the government does. Um, uh, not necessarily allowed for, for, for people to sort of say on the street, go bit, beat Nick up. But there's a final sort of uh, way of thinking about this. If, if we were uh, hanging out in a, a nice coffee shop, uh, wide diversity of people, but uh, like-minded in the sense that they have no interest in doing mob justice, and I got up and said, hey, everyone punch Nick Babaya. And they all laughed at me. And you could show that every reasonable person should have expected that response. Then you won't, I think, succeed in prosecuting me for incitement to do violence. Because one of the uh, key elements that has to be tested is whether there really was a real chance that my words could have led to violence. Uh, and in the situation I'm imagining, there was no chance at all. Um, so that's obviously very different to if we're in a situation where people are already like, oh, we hate Nick. Oh, what a bad guy. And then I say, well, why don't you all go punch him in the face? Then there's a real expectation that they might do it. Uh, so so on that simple difference, which is not even the sort of esoteric difference or fundamental difference I've tried to draw between the state's capacity for violence and an individual's capacity, just on the simple difference of if there's a reasonable expectation that this thing is going to be followed through, again, there's a case to be made that so long as there's a reasonable expectation that the government is not actually going, going to go through with EWC and is not actually going to steal people's stuff, then it should be allowed to be argued um, but as soon as it becomes a reasonable expectation, then you shouldn't be allowed to argue it. But of course, as soon as it becomes a reasonable expectation, the chances of enforcing any law that are going to prevent, prevent, uh, prevent that argument uh, goes out the window as well. So in that sense, I think the sort of free speech, the hope that some free speech limitation is going to save one from, uh, from, from, from bad political actors uh, motivating very, very bad actions is moot because uh, you're only going to be able to stop those uh, political uh, speeches when they are so fringe as to as to not be sort of uh, plausibly stop. insightful. Uh, right. And and as soon as they really become insightful, you're not going to be able to stop them in any event. Right. I, and well, can I just before you before you go in there, Nick? I want to say that I think one of the problems uh, with the way a lot of people look at this is that, uh, as you alluded to in the, your points about the esteem economy. Far too much of the focus here is on the state. The state is the only tool we have. No, not really. We also have society. We also have esteem, that kind of stuff. Sorry, Nick. 
Yeah, I think the esteem economy is an interesting one here because it, it does show that if you have a, a better society in which certain things, advocating for certain things is very shameful, uh, then this becomes much less of a threat. You you have to worry about it much less because there's at least the sort of, um, uh, you know, esteem economy to fall back on if, if bad ideas do enter the marketplace of ideas. Um, but but here's here's a you know a critique of liberalism that I have heard certain individuals give recently, and that is that by being so tolerant of ideas that are clearly destructive to a free liberal democratic society, liberals in a way kind of commit suicide in that it is through their tolerance of bad ideas that they allow illiberal uh, ideas to rise to the surface of society. I mean, this has obviously happened, I I don't think using the, the, the rise of the Nazi party in Germany is perhaps an example, but the thing I always remember there is that they were voted in initially. Uh, so an example of a country which specifically outlaws certain kinds of speech, because if those idea kinds of speech were to be advocated for, it would pose a national security threat, is China, for example. So... In China, you may not advocate for independence of a certain region of China, whether that's Hong Kong, which there was a lot of support for at one point in time, or anywhere else. Um, this has got to do with China's kind of geopolitical situation. It's it's like surrounded by a lot of countries that are quite hostile to it. So, you know, if you can imagine if Hong Kong were to become independent and become a U.S. ally right on China's front door, that would be a really bad thing. And for that reason and others... Uh, you know, they've passed this national security law, which has not only made certain kinds of speech uh, uh, illegal, but it's it's gone much further. Like now, now it's a lot of Hong Kongers are quite um, circumspect about criticizing government policy in general. Um, but what this has allowed is that it has allowed countries like China, who who do limit these kinds of speech, to totally avoid these sorts of problems which may arise in society. And likewise, I, I see a lot of liberal democracies going the other way, where you have these fundamentally illiberal ideas, mostly coming from the left these days, though it was not always like that in the West, you know, coming to the play. And and they are now, uh, you know, some people will argue, hollowing out these societies and making these countries worse off. So, so this is a, a critique of liberalism, which I have heard recently. And it's, it's at least gotten me thinking you know, do liberals kind of allow for themselves to get taken out by being too tolerant of, of these kinds of ideas? Um, what, what do you guys think so, about that? Point? So, 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 so I want to, I really want to leverage the esteem economy. So let me be specific about the EFF. The Daily Maverick published an editorial this weekend, which said that the EFF used to be it used to describe the EFF as uh, vicious and small, um, but now it's outright dangerous. I think this is on the back of a few things. One of them is is that, as I discussed on Two Crickets, I think a week or two ago, I thought that the EFF was toast. I thought it was set to lose half of its vote by the next election. That might still be possible. My hypothesis was grounded on three basic things. One of them is my friends in the EFF, uh, many... Uh, have 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 uh, have grown uh, very disillusioned about the party. Uh, secondly, uh, my experience of going to major EFF rallies was that the you know twenty percent of the people uh, were looking at me 
with great animosity and said some nasty things to me. But most people there were, were very eager to embrace me and say things like, you know, we don't want, we don't really want to take this stuff. We just want to get rid of corruption. We don't trust ANC, and 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 this guy is really going to give us jobs. Um, there was a lot of praying. Uh, it seemed like a lot of goodwill. It seemed like the EFF's membership and its and its policy, even at a major rally, were were were, were not in lockstep. That, in other words, Julius Malema can get two thousand hardcore people together who who cheer at the sounds of taking everything and giving it to our people. But that if you want to get twenty thousand, thirty thousand people in a stadium, then you need to start praying and saying uh, very sweet sounding things. And uh, the third is is uh, uh, looking at the polls. Uh, earlier polls uh, of the institutes of uh, under R. W. Johnson from ENCA, and uh, and also from Ipsos, uh, which seemed to suggest to me that 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 EFF members' values didn't line up with. Uh, and then the fourth, sorry, I said three, but it's really four. The fourth is is my sense that news, some kinds of news, travels very slowly in South Africa. So the EFF's big problem is is the VBS corruption scandal and other corruption scandals. It's lost several treasurers or, or finance sort of shadow ministers and stuff uh, who've said basically the party's corrupt. And uh, there's been great reporting, particularly coming from the Daily Maverick, which is where I started this, on the EFF's corruption. But I thought, you know, Zuma's corruption was uh, first reported uh, in the 2000s, and it took a while for it to percolate through the society. But I thought if you combine these four factors, uh, the slow percolation of news, particularly uh, when black people are accused of corruption in this country, the first knee-jerk response when they're black nationalists like Malema is, well, you're just being a racist. So that's why the news gets through slowly. Um, uh, but then looking at the values, uh, looking at my experience of the news actually getting through, it seemed like the EFA would lose half of its vote. And I thought the DA might compete for some of that. And I thought Herman Mashaba, for example, one of the guys filtering out of the DA, who, who who seems much more competent as a businessman, he might be able to take uh, half of their vote. Now, that idea was sort of blown out of the water a little bit, looking at the Ipsos polls that just came out, which said that the EFF voters actually increased in 2020. Um, also, the EFF has managed to run the media circus through Sienekal, away from Newcastle, a peaceful protest to generate excitement in Brackenfell and 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 do some violence there about ultimately a school party with on a false narrative that, that black students weren't invited. They were. Um, and uh, you know, we see this metastasizing into into increased violence once again on the streets and uh, now threats about uh, the Kalini case and so on. So the EFF does look stronger than ever, actually. Uh, this is a this is a great problem and something to confront. Uh, now Part of the reason that I mentioned the Daily Maverick is that while they're doing very good work now, I think that early in the EFF's days, Daily Maverick was very sympathetic towards the EFF. When the party was newly formed around 2013, uh, it was the case that Julius Malema was much like Paris Hilton and that other brother that you mentioned, uh, uh, someone that sort of uh, got a lot of attention, a lot of it very disesteemous, some of it celebratory. Uh, he wasn't a serious political force. He was he was a youth he was sort of a clown who who would say things that a lot of people think uh, but weren't prepared to say. Uh, when he formed his own party, the media had to then reevaluate its position vis-a-vis -vis the EFF. And the Daily Maverick made a lot of room for the EFF's intellectuals to publish their sort of Marxist race nationalists uh, policies. 
And that's where I first read the EFF table, its ideas about expropriation without compensation, its misrepresentation of the facts and so on to support this. And it seemed to me at the time that the, da that the Daily Mavericks editorial line, this was my interpretation, was that it would be, it would make a lot of room for, for black race nationalist and Marxist writers intellectually, uh, but that it would be highly critical of corruption. And this made sense because it made it, it, it you know, if if you say, look, we agree with you ideologically, uh, but we just think that the problem is that particular personnel are stealing from our people, uh, then you're more likely to be taken seriously by the guys who who are inside the, the corridors of power. Now, I thought that that was a mistake at the time, and Richard Poplack was the Daily Maverick's greatest writer, and I think he really set the tone, uh, saying... You know, he was so celebratory of the EFF. And then I think it was 2018 or 2019, finally, when the, you know, VBS scandal started to drop and, and people started to realize as soon as expropriation without compensation actually came before parliament, uh, you know, it's like, oh, now, now the little child, you let it do whatever it wants to do and you kind of celebrate it and then uh, it starts bringing home its friends and they have bones through their noses and they want to smoke crack cocaine and look steal it, it starts a bit scary when it gets a bit real uh, and so already the tone was starting to cool um, and then the VBS thing landed and then Richard Poplack said well you know I used to think the EFF is great but it turns out that they've just been captured as well by sort of capitalist tendencies to accrue wealth. Uh, I don't think that's a really good um, appraisal coming out of Richard Poplack. I don't think he grasps the, 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 the real ideological roots of the problem. Uh, but I think he's a particular writer that exemplifies a broader failure in the esteem market, which is that the place that what should have happened with the EFF is that it should have been dissed uh, hard on its values, on its principles. Its manifesto from 2013 is overtly Marxist and race nationalist. This was always enough to say that the EFF uh, should not be taken seriously. Uh, and so far as it should be taken seriously, it should be considered a threat. And if the Sunday Times and independent media and the Daily Maverick and News 24, if they had taken that line, if the producers at the major television networks had taken that line of always finishing a broadcast about the EFF by saying, look, let's not forget these guys think South Africa is only for black people, that white people are guests that property itself is theft. It's such a corrupt thing that you should never really try and accrue wealth through entrepreneurship on your own basis or through hard work. Uh, if they'd always uh, framed the ideological side of the debate properly, then the EFF never would have grown to the position that it did. It never would have stood a chance of being the kingmaker that it might have been in the in the 2017 Nazareth election of that, uh, where it might have stepped in to rejoin Kozazana Tlemini Zuma. We would have been in an entirely different country if, uh, if, if, if uh, what you might call intolerance, but what I call disesteem, had been leveled against the bad ideas. And the same is true of Jacob Zuma. Jacob Zuma, when he was elected president, was suddenly praised by a lot of people. Oh, yes, uh, sorry, uh, this, is, this, is a, this is a bugbear of mine. The way that uh, people responded to the DA Stop Zuma campaign, yeah. um, calling it racist and out of touch. And no, Zuma was the voice of the people. And if you, if you said that he would be stopped, who truly represented blackness in uh, in the union buildings, and that was a, a, a you know a tone deaf is a is a word that's often used to criticize um, you know various things to like criticize that we critics. say right. Yeah. So, so uh, criticize the critic. You can't say there's no room general. for criticism. These guys are these guys are dissing. They're criticizing the critics. The screw up 
has been one of the major screw-ups in the West. And George Orwell identified this in 1945. He predicted it. One of the major screw-ups in terms of tolerance is, 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 is thinking that black people are not people just like you and me or, or, or anyone else. That adults that happen to have black skins should not be dissed that uh, because of how horrible slavery was and how horrible apartheid was and so on, uh, you, 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 you must hold back on, on criticism. This is an inhuman, this idea of tolerance is not really tolerance. It's babying, it's patronizing, it's matronizing. It's, it's, uh, it's awful. And, and this is, I don't see uh, tolerance as being at the roots of, uh, I think, the problems that Nick's alluding to and that we're definitely both speaking to about EFF and EWC. I don't think tolerance is the issue. I think, I think condescension is the issue. Patronizing, matronizing at attitudes are the issue. Racism is ultimately the issue. It's, it's, it's a bigoted thing to treat an adult like a child. And, and adults depend, amongst other things, on criticism, on frank and honest criticism. So I think that, uh, yeah, I suppose, I suppose that's my comeback, is that I think China relies on the law uh, to stop bad ideas from spreading. Uh, the problem is that it makes the Chinese system very fickle. So, you know, it's, it's a thing that's, that's very rigid. It keeps its shape until it completely snaps. Um, there's something more pliable about an open market of ideas, but, uh, but, but that can also go wrong if you slowly bend, slowly bend, slowly bend in one direction. Eventually, you can also get to a snapping point. And in terms of uh, black race nationalism in particular and Marxism to an extent after the Cold War, I think there's been so much uh, uh, matronizing kind of motherly condescension that, uh, that, that, that ideas have been celebrated and praised that, that for, for decades and decades that, that at the beginning were innocuous, maybe even useful, definitely useful uh, during the apartheid struggle. Black consciousness is very useful during the apartheid struggle. But in 2020 or 2015 or 2010 to say I'm, I'm proud because I'm black is as crazy as it is to say I'm proud that I'm white in 1950 and ultimately might prove to be as harmful. And, and, and that's something that should have been met by frank criticism uh, and, I, and I went into the media a bit. I could tell a similar story about academia, about the major nodes in the networks, in, in the esteem economies networks. Uh, and, uh, and, and, it, and it's a failure to, of, of ordinary people and of experts to tell it like it is, to judge people on the content of their character and by merit, uh, to, to, to treat one another with respect, ultimately, which means criticism as well when you get things wrong that has led us to where, where we are. It's not, in my view, a failure of the law to to ban Zuma from uh, having many wives or, or, or to ban Malema from saying he wants EWC or uh, to ban, uh, I don't know, whatever kind of speech Can it is that ask, one might want to ban. Just on this, I, I think I like your, I like this idea of, of disesteem as opposed to intolerance. Um, Though I can see how certain foes of ours might use that against us, uh, but but just given what you've said about the media and the EFF, what's your theory on how people like Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro, those kinds of sort of very populist leaders who I'm sure find absolutely no friends in the media in their respective countries, do eventually rise to power? Uh, it, it seems, don't you think? Well, well, let's look. I can't say that I know Brazilian politics so well. No, but Donald Trump's a very good example of of a, of a, of Fox News. 
is the most successful media company in the world. Part of what happened with the American media is that it was, you know, especially after World War II, but you can kind of trace the American media story back to the the war that they had with the Spanish in Cuba in 1899 uh, when yellow belly journalism developed. There was this idea that the American media would say, we're all Americans together because we've got a common enemy and let's go blow them up. And uh, And that idea is a very, very, very effective and very old idea. And after World War II, the American media was very much uh, of one mind. Uh, it didn't really what station you would check into, see similar ideas presented in a similar fashion. Things started to come apart a little bit. Uh, there were different ways to, to treat the, the civil rights movement. Um, but they really started to come apart after the Pentagon Papers, after the Watergate scandal, and after the rise, you know, after Barry Goldwater started sort of pushing back against affirmative action and then the rise of Ronald Reagan, uh, sort of uh, conservative politics. And, uh, and, and the upshot of that long history, in my view, is that what the American media sector looked like was left of what the American people looked like. And Fox News stepped in and said, well, look, if you're going to have four channels all competing along similar editorial lines and no major channels competing on the national stage uh, on, on a line that uh, seems more like the line that the Republican Party takes and they're getting half the vote, then we're going to eat that market. We're going to get half of the market share. And that's more or less what they managed to do. Going through the Obama era, I was living in America and I watched CNN and MSNBC and ABC and listened to NPR and read the New York Times and the Washington Post and the LA Times and the Chicago Tribune. I was a very eager consumer of American mainstream news media. And they were critics of Obama. Many, just, just as many of them said the problem with Obama is that he has not gone far enough as those who said the problem with Obama is that uh, he's not gone far enough. I can't really remember any said, who said he's gone too far. Um, the, the Obama sort of uh, was then – so, you know, there was a very great consensus uh, amongst the mainstream that Obama was great, with the exception of Fox News, who made terrible mistakes, uh, often compared Obama to Hitler. Uh, you know, when he said, I've got, a, I've got a phone and a pen and I'll do things by executive order if Mitch McConnell and the Senate and the House keep obstructing me, they said, well, this is the talk of a dictator, this is like Mussolini. Sometimes they'd get sort of uh, uh, outside people and say this is just like Hitler. They would uh, sort of share a pool with Rush Limbaugh and the like. Um, and and uh, it's out of that half of the esteem economy that Trump grew. And yes, it's true that uh, the Republican establishment uh, was very opposed to Trump in the beginning. But as soon as he started doing well in the polls, they gave him a go. And let's not forget that Trump had another side, which is the non-political side of the esteem economy. He was he was extremely famous in New York and had some measure of fame around the country right, this, uh, really because of his TV of, shows. Yeah, Right. There's really good examples of how much pop media he actually showed up in before um, he went into politics. I mean, he hung out with celebrities and stuff. And one of the things I think that might have been a little bit per personally jarring for him is that he had a lot of friends in Hollywood and the media and suddenly they all dumped him. <laughs> and I think that explains partly his animus for the media. Um, How nice although, he was, yeah. Yeah. But he did not he did not get where he got without the esteem economy's backing. He it's just that the American America is like two countries in a sense. Right. And and, uh, and, and we only and we usually only see one of those countries. 
but indeed, Red America and, and I, is there's huge. Something I wanna, there's something I want to add here, which is that one of the things that technology has done in recent years with social media and all that kind of stuff and the internet has been to, just like it's done with everything else, to break up the the the, nod, the nodes of the esteem economy so that there's more paths in to build a market and to build an esteem base for yourself um, because you can find people more easily, more directly. Uh, whereas, you know, in the 60s, there were like four TV channels and not that many uh, radio stations. And so if you could kind of swing those people, you could have a much better grasp of things. Um, but things yeah. have changed. Technology As Catherine Graham used changed. to say, Catherine Graham was the publisher of the of the Washington Post. You could get every major editor, you could get every major opinion maker in the country around a table for lunch. Uh, in 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 the 1960s, you really can't do that today. Now it's quite interesting because all the opinion makers have changed to, you know, they've gone. The the power has very very much shifted to a, a much broader audience. You know. Me and a bunch of my friends in university started a website where we were writing articles about libertarianism in South Africa. Um, and you couldn't do that in the 1960s. I mean, I don't know, maybe you could start a little flyer which you could distribute around your neighborhood, but that's about as far as you could go. Um, it, it does make me feel like a, a sort of grassroots movement can be formed much more readily now. And that even if you have the mainstream media opinion, et cetera, et cetera, trying to disesteem certain figures, um, that might not always work. I mean, let, let me ask you, Gabriel, do you think that if all these news organizations in South Africa really had EFF from the start, they would not be having huge rallies filling stadiums in the Northwest today? Yeah, I do think that. I think that... Uh I think that there are that there are analogs. So if, if you look at um, the PAC, uh, they sort of ran a pretty hard line through apartheid, and uh, you know, apartheid was strange because uh, black-owned media was almost non-existent. Uh, this was a terrible thing, and and so the real tastemakers. Were, were almost all white and a lot of them turned out to be international and uh, and some of them swayed by the UN which has its own uh, sort of uh, hold on the esteem economy and the ANC was deemed officially by the UN to be the sole authentic representative of black South Africans and you know I know you know there were there were reasonable people in Nazapu there were there were some reasonable people in PAC um, who kind of stuck with it because they just felt so offended by the idea that only the ANC has legitimate force. And of course, the IFP is the much bigger issue because the IFP was really had a lot of reasonable uh, people, a lot of reasonable positions. Right. If, and if it, I was, can... it was kind of frozen out. If the PAC today in South Africa is practically nowhere. Uh, and that's because it gets practically no, it's because if it does anything, it gets disesteemed. The PAC can't do what Malema does. It would be right. sitting in the same position. And a similar thing is true of the SACP. While the media is very willing to take a sympathetic line towards Marxism, as soon as you have an official communist party uh, proposal, if, if EWC had been proposed by the communist party at any point in the last 10 years, uh, it would have been dissed. And the Communist Party cannot get rallies of tens and of thousands of people. It cannot do what Malema does, and that's because it gets dissed. Right. Uh, if I can just add to that point, actually, with a story one of my parents told me, because they were journalists during the IFP-ANC conflict. And uh, they said, uh, I think it was my dad told me the story. He said that, you know, 
the story often in these these conflicts between the ANC and the IFP, especially in Joburg, was ANC people would target IFP people coming home from work. They'd kill one, they'd kill two, they'd kill three. And then the IFP would get together a big impi and then just charge out into the town and basically, you know, bash everyone they could find. And when the journalists, usually the foreign journalists, arrived to interview people and find out what happened, uh, they'd find that only ANC supporters were the, were the ones who spoke English and they had some media training and so they could immediately sway the opinion makers. And so the IFP side of the story really wasn't told by that many people. There were a couple, you know, like... Um, yeah. I love that. It's, so, it's such that. a tragic irony that like such a simple language difference can, can right. be part of a... And so, so you'd have kind of good lefty uh, Canadian journalists, you know, were really committed to the, the, the project of, of, of free speech and a free South African, all that stuff. They'd go out and they were already primed by the stuff Gabriel talked about, like the UN and all that, to, uh, to, to tell the ANC side of the story. And then, of course, the only person that they could talk to were ANC people who would say the people were attacked by the IFP. Uh, and that was the line mm. they had. And they often, you know, you, they could speak English and all that sort of thing. So these journalists would just write down what they said. And there might be an IFP guy there who could have told them a very different, more complicated story. Um, and it just would never get heard. Okay, I want to come in and say that I think Babaya, I've been pushing uh, against the idea uh, of of sort of government intolerance of, of laws to check free speech. Um but I, but I do think that that uh, you know because I think there's a there's a better way than China's way, and that's just by ordinary people actually stepping up to the plate, and also by experts, by media writers, by people whose job it is to to serve the public interest, um, to to do to do their jobs, and academics. But I do think that there's a that there there is a point to be made here. So say there's a restaurant that uh, that serves Italian food, and uh, it says no black people are allowed to come to this restaurant. Well, that's a property violation. And so the state can come in without it being a free speech issue. But now say the restaurant says, no, anyone's allowed to come in, we'll serve you. But on our sign, it says we really would prefer black people to stay away. And, uh, you know, you might also say uh, there's a restaurant in uh, in uh, 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 KZN that I've, that I've seen, which says, you know, uh, white is allowed, not preferred. And it's said very tongue in cheek, and it's and it's run by a colored operator, and, he, and he's just having a chuckle. But if um, then there's a free speech issue. Should someone be allowed to say that, or should someone be allowed to say, you know, anyone can apply for this job, but we really would prefer only one race to apply for this job, and that's very very real issue because that's actually what most businesses say, uh, or scholarships. I needed a scholarship to go to university when I was 18. And there was only one scholarship in the whole country that my school's uh, sort of uh, career advisory council could recommend me to try because all the rest either said no whites or whites are allowed to apply, but we really would prefer that they don't. Now, that's a speech issue when they say you're allowed, but we'd prefer you don't come. And and here, I think that uh, it is worth, uh, I think it's worth it for the government to to make a rule against that to not tolerate that intolerance. Um, and that's because of the knock-on effects that that kind of speech can have. When you, when you directly combine speech with money, then I think because government is ultimately the guardian of property, it has a case to make for, for, for intervening uh, on a principled perspective and from a prudential point of view, that's where 
the the that's where the rubber hits the road in terms of getting the big uh, rallies together. So, for example, Babaya's question: if if all of the mainstream media houses uh, denounced the EFF, rejected the EFF, dissed the EFF, uh, would they have gotten nowhere? Well, if that's where it stayed, then yes. But if uh, the Guptas funded ANN Seven as they did. Uh, you know, if big money came to the party and said, we want to sponsor huge uh, uh, new media platforms that are going to support the EFF, then they could have uh, created the path to popularity that the EFF needed. Um, and so where money and speech connect, I think uh, I think that there's there's much more leeway for for for, for government regulation. And I think that America is, you know, uh, there's this sort of idea that uh, coming out of the Supreme Court about 10 years ago that uh, that speech is money. And so that the freedom of speech in the American Constitution apply uh, just as much to what you say as to what you pay others to say or, or, or relations of that kind. I think that's a mistaken view. Um, I think that the government... I think the government's duty is to protect our property uh, and to protect us from coercive responses to other people's, uh, you know, if I say something and someone wants to bump me on the head for saying that, then the government must also protect me. And in that sense, it must protect my speech. But I don't think it's the government's responsibility to to protect our our right to 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 pay for whatever bad ideas we want to pay for. Uh, including, you know, the, the, the bad idea of of uh, not letting people into your restaurant based on their race yeah you know i i think when it comes to an issue of of private property for me that's a very important thing that the government not intervene on um because one of the things about private prop we often talk about freedom of speech as the freedom that allows you to keep your other freedoms because you get to criticize the government when it's going to take away your other freedoms but I think property actually goes above that. So, you know, let, let's say we had freedom of speech in a country, but we if all the property was state owned uh, and I wanted to hold an event criticizing the ANC, the ANC could say, oh, no, sorry, we're not going to grant you a venue to hold that event or this is state property and we don't allow you to do X, Y or Z here. So, you know, in that way, property rights, I think, are almost they are almost even above uh, uh, free speech. And in that sense, I would be very, very weary about having the government intervene in, in any case like that. I would also add that I think, you know, a market system has certain mechanisms where if somebody is being discriminatory, it means that they lose out on business. They are also subject to, you know, social pressures, ostracism, boycotts. This is all where the esteem economy must play a role, I think, in a good society. It's not something you can enforce governmentally. Um, but I think it's one of these age-old questions which liberals maybe don't like to address so much, and that is, well, we believe certain things should be done by the government, but how do you, what do you do about the other aspects of society that are not good? Um, and South Africa is loaded with these things. You think about, you know, the problems that this country has with violent crime, murder and rape. I mean, it's 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 actually outrageous. And you go and you look at our neighbors in the Southern African region, and they've got crime rates nowhere near ours. Maybe some, um, but to my understanding, a place like Zimbabwe, although it's much poorer, it's much safer as well. They don't have nearly the number of murders that we have, per se. Um, and so you do get these kind of societal issues where, I, I, you know, this is where your steam economy idea, I think, is really great, Gabriel. And and if we could find a way of 
you know, making it so undesirable to create these crimes without having government infringe on someone's rights, then we could get on the path of having a liberal free society while simultaneously um, improving that society where people commit horrible crimes that they shouldn't. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just yeah, right. I, no, I mean, I think I, I think it's tough, I, but yeah, I, th I think I th the, the anti-discrimination laws I was talking about, sort of saying you can't say we prefer to hire people of one race or we can't we prefer to sell to people of one race or we can't say we prefer to have people of one race around us. Uh, those kinds of laws that sort of uh, are, find themselves regulating the intersection between speech and property. Uh, I think that they're a good intermediary uh, mechanism when you find yourself in an esteem economy that does sometimes reward racism, uh, but where you don't want to use the force of government to, to overtly regulate speech uh, entirely, uh, but in part because the fact that uh, the esteem economy somewhat supports uh, racism is, is going to be a very good predictor of the, the government somewhat supporting racism. Uh, mm. And I think non-discrimination laws uh, at that intersection are a way of just making it a little bit harder uh, for, for, for racist actors, for example, to, to, to get ahead. Um, so I don't would, think you only, would you only have non-discrimination laws for race or would you go to a lot of other things as well? Yeah, no, I think non-discrimination laws around gender are obviously very difficult because uh, if you want to have a boys-only tennis club because, uh, you know, I think gender is complicated. I think gender is complicated in, in ways that race often isn't. Um, I do think that uh, when it comes to employment uh, and purchasing uh, rather than voluntary club meeting and restaurant going and whatever, uh, I think that there certainly ought to be non-discrimination laws uh, for gender and sexual preference and uh, religious preference and things like that as well. Um, but uh, yeah, we're, we're, I think that race is a is I, th I see clear a clear blue line between race and and all voluntary associations. Uh, so it's unlike religion in the sense that you you do in a very serious way not get to choose your race, um, whereas you can volunteer, you can opt into or out of a religion. Uh, so in that sense, race is different to to a lot of uh, other social identities, but it's also different to gender in the sense that the biological differences between races to me seem either uh, inconsistent with what people claim they are, or 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 just uh, in uh, insignificant. Uh, whereas there are significant biological differences between men and women uh, in terms of sporting ability, in terms of you know, if you've got 100 men and 100 women, chances are that a lot of the men want to sleep with a lot of the women and vice versa. So maybe they want different bathrooms uh, or different changing rooms or or, 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 or different uh, social settings to have certain kinds of, you know, different sports clubs or whatever. So I think that that, that race is different to gender in, in, in the sense that it's biologically much less significant and it's different to the rest in the sense that it's uh, involuntary. And so in that sense, I think it's a, it's a place to have very hard and fast non-discrimination laws. Uh, and the rest are, you know, you've got to sort of tailor it to its function a bit more. So uh, we're kind of coming up now on, on about an hour into the thing. So I think we should kind of start wrapping up. Um, I, I think one of the final things I just want to kind of say on this topic, um, and it's in line mostly with what we've been saying, is that, you know, with a lot of these issues of like you know intolerant political opinions and you know making sure the esteem market works properly it's a reminder that having like a definitive perfect systemic way of dealing with these issues is not really possible i think in a lot of intellectual debates we really often want to come up with like the perfect solution the um, silver bullet 
Right, yeah. the silver bullet, exactly. And that ultimately, the only way you deal with this problem is by the constant maintenance of, of liberty. It's like, you know, you have to repaint the house every single year. And you're never going to have to stop repainting the house because the the sort of corruption of illiberalism, the, the destru its destructive power will never stop creeping in. There is no society you can design that. And that's the false hope that the Chinese system presents is that, no, no, we can just shut it all down forever. And it will just, you know, then we can destroy all these threats and have this perfect harmonious society. I think that's also a problem with a lot of the kind of uh, more Confucianist systems of organization is is this there's too much it's it's a bit too utopian in the sense that it's it can it believes it can reach a perfect equilibrium but that's not really how these things work um you have to constantly plow away at it forever and i think that's really uh really how we have to think of liberty and maintaining the liberal society um a republic Nick, yeah, final final word for you right exactly exactly yeah no that's exactly i mean and you know what you know what, it is quite interesting to see, you know, if maybe in a few decades, what China will look like. It might be totally different. It might decline. It might carry on in its path and overtake the United States. Who knows? Um, if there's one thing that working at the CRA has taught me, it's that the world is a complex system and making dead set predictions in about things where there's lots of factors that influence them is that's why people get them wrong the whole time. Um, but yeah, I mean, what I'd say is that I think this is an interesting topic and it's one which we should definitely take seriously. Um, you know, if you want to live in a liberal democratic society, and I'm not when I say liberal, I, I don't mean left. I just mean a, a society that is open and free, that includes both government and the people that live under that government. You know, you advocate for policies that you want the government to do that you think are in accord with a liberal democratic society. But I think that's only one half of a bargain. And that the other half of the bargain is that you have to have a populace which also upholds certain values, generally speaking. Um, because if you don't, then I think inevitably what happens is people say, oh, this is not working. And you sort of you know, divulge into the mire of authoritarianism. And that's very risky because authoritarianism can work if you have a very good authoritarian who's running you, like a bit like Singapore or China post-1978. Uh, but if you like China pre-1978 or any number of other African countries, I mean, take your pick, I think you can pick just about anyone, um, then you're in big trouble. So, you know, th this is maybe an issue which liberals have not spoken so much about. Libertarian is uh, going to this, how, how do we mold a good society? And I think it's something which we can't really brush under the carpet. And so I think that's what I'll, I'll end off by saying. Yeah, my final thoughts on this is that uh, people often the one word you haven't heard, which you would usually hear in a debate about this, is education. Oh, we need the schools to sort it out. Uh, I think it's uh, just uh, listen very carefully to the silence and how we didn't mention that. Uh, and the other thing to say is, yeah, when you grow up, you figure out that your parents make mistakes and you criticize them and they criticize you. We've all been adolescents and had those terrible fights and you get through it and you and you learn to love them more often than not. And uh, you fall in love or whatever. If you really love your wife, uh, you'll tell her when, she's, when you think she's doing the wrong thing. Um, I think if you really love your country, then you'll speak up and, you, and you'll say, I think, I think this isn't right. And I think that uh, the, the, the very worst idea of tolerance is, is that it means uh, being uncritical. I think that's not tolerance. I think that's obsequience. It's a nice old English word. And yes. uh, obsequience is the path to, to, to disaster.
it is also what I would call a five dollar word, which is a, yes. a word that's far more worth <laughs> than your ordinary word. High right. score in Scrabble. Yeah, high score in Scrabble. There we go. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> so um, let's uh, let's let's start wrapping this up uh, with our recommendations, as we do every week. Uh, I'm going to go first and be lazy, and say that you should read uh, Gabriel's piece in the Daily Friend, the uh, Kalini Killers Not Guilty, um, which is just about sort of the case that he did a lot of work on, which is the Kalini uh, killings, uh, or not killing in this case, <laughs> the Kalini murder trial, should I say? And uh, and sort of the the, the, the the way a lot of people responded to it and covered the acquittal of the two guys accused. Um, yeah, who who of you wants to go next? Who of you got, has, a, has a thing to recommend? Goodbye. Yeah, so Goodbye. Got... You you put something in Chinese in the chat here to yeah, yeah we can't read Chinese. Obscure it from us. Also, yeah, well, Chinese is not a language. We should deplatform uh, Lorimer because uh, uh, Chinese is not a language. <laughs> Uh, no, I'm just saying Chinese is actually, <laughs> Chinese is actually a, a language. You you can trust me on that one. Um, <laughs> so so I have that that thing that What's I posted in the chat is the name of a Taiwanese series that is on Netflix, which I watched recently, and it's an anthology series, a bit like Black Mirror. Every episode is its own story, and in English, it's it's simply called On Children. When they say on, they mean like about. Um, and in Chinese, the name is interesting. The Chinese name is which literally means your children are not your children. Um, and that is kind of like an allusion to the final episode. I won't spoil anything, but anyway, this is a, this is a brilliant series. It's like the Taiwanese black mirror. Um, and what I think it taught me is that although we have many societal problems here in South Africa, a lot of other countries don't have societal problems that we have, but they have other ones that come with other parts when your country changes and becomes more wealthy. And so, yeah, this is just a brilliant series. English subtitles, obviously, if you want to go watch and like after every episode, like you're, you are just left like, oh, my goodness. And you just like think to yourself for an hour. It's very good. So watch On Dude, Children. Great rec- on Children. Great yeah. recommendation. I, look, I, I will check that out. My recommendation is I am uh, getting into the collapse of the Third Republic. Uh, William Scherer's history of the fall of France to Nazi Germany in 1940. Uh, He was there at the time. He was a war correspondent uh, with the Germans, actually. He's an American. He was very anti-Nazi, but uh, the Nazis were trying to impress the world by how uh, tolerant they are, uh, so they allowed some foreign journalists to ride along with their soldiers. Uh, William Scherer uh, most famously wrote The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, the first great uh, near-exhaustive history of that period and, uh, and and an excellent book that we've discussed before. And uh, now I'm sort of just 200 pages into The Fall of the Third Republic, and it's, and it's fantastic. And I think uh, a lot of the issues... Uh, that we've discussed today sort of play out in the Republic uh, where where people kind of retreated into their own bunkers and became socially apathetic and and disenchanted in a way that uh, reminds me of in South Africa today. A lot of people are very frustrated, uh, keep quiet um, and, uh, and and leave the sort of loudest empty vessels to make the most noise and and the consequences can be pretty dire. But at the same time, Oh, there's something there's something about French history which which delights me, I suppose, because 
it's it's such a very old civilization, much like China. Not as old, not nearly as old, but they did invent champagne. So there's always a there's always a bubbly, sparkly, uh, glisten to to the stories that come out of France. <laughs> Indeed. Right. So I think our next episode for uh, uh, and and either our second last or last episode um, for the year is going to be a discussion of what happened. This has been quite a weird year um sort of i think it's going to be far more memorable than the previous year um and gabriel and i will just shoot the breeze about that a bit but uh, anyway that's for then uh thank you we'll check you around keep the flag of liberty flying and have a great week